I'm Mark Vinette, and this is The Story of America. In this special crossover episode, join me and Steve Guerra of History of the Papacy podcast as we turn back the clock to 1494 and examine the Treaty of Tordesillas, sanctioned by Pope Julius II, which divided newly explored territories, including North America, between Portugal and Spain. Steve, would you like to tell my audience about your podcast? Yeah, I'd love to. And I want to thank you so much, Mark, for having me on your show today and for proposing this crossover episode. It's a really fascinating history, and it leads a lot into the history that I discuss in my podcast. Well, my name is Steve Guerra, and I'm the host of the History of the Papacy podcast. It's a podcast about the popes of Rome and Christian church, and we start at the beginning, but we don't necessarily take a straight line. And that's why episodes like this are really fascinating for me because I'm able to discuss a lot of the history and theology and all of the background story that makes the time period that happened before things like the Treaty of Tordesillas make more sense and and illumines some of the history that came afterwards. So I love these types of episodes. Here's a short synopsis of the Treaty of Tordesillas. Signed at Tordesillas in Spain on June 7, 1494, This agreement divided the newly discovered lands outside Europe between the Portuguese and Spanish empires. The dividing line of demarcation was about halfway between Portugal's Cape Verde Islands off the west coast of Africa and the islands explored by Christopher Columbus on his first voyage in 1492, which were claimed for Spain. The lands to the east would belong to Portugal and the lands to the west to Spain. Steve, What is the background of this treaty up to the year 1493? It's a really complicated story, and there's a lot of twists and turns. Really, at the heart of this issue is a major dynastic fight that happened in the Iberian Peninsula, what we would today call modern-day Spain and Portugal. In the late 1400s, there was really no such thing as Spain, per se, Portugal was an independent kingdom with more or less the same borders that we would see on the map today. Now, the complicated story between these kingdoms and the Iberian Peninsula, it's really worth taking a quick look at this backstory, especially the fights between the royal families and this conflict, because that's a large driver of the story. But in short, what was going on in the the Iberian Peninsula in the 1400s was the kingdom that would become Spain was three kingdoms and emirate. There was the kingdom of Castile, which was most of the central and northern part of the peninsula. Then you had the kingdom of Aragon, which was most of the east coast a small kingdom of Navarre, which was lodged in the Pyrenees in between France and Spain, and that included part of the Basque country. Then you had the Emirate of Granada, which was the last Muslim outpost in the Iberian Peninsula, which was located in the high Sierra Nevada mountains in the south of Spain. So the royalty of all these kingdoms intermarried all the time, trying to tie the whole peninsula together. Now, in the time leading up to the 1490s, 
and 1480s Castile, this main central kingdom, was ruled by a weak king named Enrique. He had major problems producing an heir that the aristocracy of Castile would support and approve of. Enrique had a sister named Isabella, who also had a claim to the crown as well. And the whole idea of primogenitor, where sons had to be the next in line for the kingdom, was not as locked in in Spain and Portugal as it was in, say, like England at that time. Interesting. Now, Enrique, he wanted to marry off Isabella for a variety of reasons. There was some talk about her marrying a really high member of the French court and some other nobles, but none of these really went anywhere for a variety of reasons. Now, Isabella, she was a teen at this time, and she found a fellow named Ferdinand, the next in line to be the king of the kingdom of Aragon next door to Castile. I have a hard time imagining Queen Isabella as a young teenage princess because our image of her in all the paintings and in the history that is often told is of a very mature, strong, powerful woman. It's so funny, too. And before reading this and really digging into the history, that's what I had in my mind. But then as we see later how Ferdinand and Isabella, they were married when they were about, I believe Ferdinand was about 17, and Isabella was a little bit younger than that. So they came up together and really grew into adults with each other, into this powerful power couple that we'll see in the 1490s. It's a really fascinating character arc for them. It really is Ferdinand and Isabella. It's hard to separate the two. And I think that Queen Isabella even had a military side to her as she got older. She became a queen that would actually go onto the battlefields. Maybe you can just give us a word or two on the Reconquista period. That's what we're living in at this point, where these various kingdoms are trying to reunite Spain by kicking out or conquering the Muslims that occupy the southern part of the peninsula. Yeah, so that's a fascinating part of the story. The Muslims had conquered almost all of the Iberian Peninsula. Slowly over the centuries, they started to reconquer parts of the Iberian Peninsula, and they formed various kingdoms. But out of that mix, these kingdoms of Portugal, Castile, and Aragon are the ones that formed the nucleus, and they were the ones that became the most powerful kingdom, along with Navarre. In about the 1200s, almost all of the peninsula had been taken back except for the very extreme south, which would become the Emirate of Granada. By about the end of the 1200s, Portugal had been reconquered in almost its shape that it has today. And it took a long time for that last holdout kingdom to be reconquered. And it was really Isabella and Ferdinand who were the ones who put together the last campaign to conquer Granada. That is what kick-started Spain, or what we could really call Castile and Aragon, to get into the Voyage of Discovery game that Portugal had been very heavily invested in for the past few decades of the 1400s. Although Portugal hadn't been sailing west, as Columbus eventually did, they'd been sailing south and trying to explore the African coast and go around the continent, and they eventually did, in order to reach Asia. 
That's a key part that's going to play into the whole story of the Treaty of Tordesillas and some of the treaties that led up to the Treaty of Tordesillas. The key year in all this, Steve, is 1492. And that's perhaps one of the key years in all of human history because we've got the age of discovery that's gaining momentum. We've got Spain, well, the different kingdoms of the peninsula that would eventually become a united Spain, conquering Granada and basically realizing their dream of the Reconquista. We've got Christopher Columbus sailing west. We've got the expulsion of the Jews from Spain. And we've got the Inquisition. When Isabella marries Ferdinand of Aragon, that's what's going to cement together what we call Spain. So Isabella, she becomes the Queen of Castile. She's married to the King of Aragon, and we have this joint kingdom now. So in 1492, Isabella and Ferdinand, on behalf of Spain, sponsor Columbus's voyage west. And it's because of Columbus's new explorations that other countries get involved, the papacy get involved, and they want to try and sort all of this out. There's one event that happens that's really the massive Kickstarter for why Portugal and Spain feel the need to go exploring was the fall of Constantinople, which was only 40 years, less than 40 years. Yeah, 1453. Which no, your was math a, is good, Steve. Your okay. math is good. <laughs> so that was uh, less than 40 years before 1492 and Columbus setting off. What the significance of the fall of Constantinople was, was the spice trade, which was the reason Portugal was trying to inch its way around Africa. They're desperately looking for what was called the Spice Islands and the Indies, which they didn't have a great idea what these places were. Were all about, but they knew that this is the place where they got pepper, cardamom, cinnamon, all these really key and important spices in Europe. That's where they were getting from. They were coming through Constantinople to Venice and the Italian states. They were outrageously expensive. They were worth their weight in gold or more because they had to be somehow traded between modern day India and Indonesia and make their way through to Europe. And they would go through many, many, many middlemen to get to Europe. Now, when Constantinople fell to the Ottoman Turks, the Ottoman Turks really put a strangle on the spice trade. They weren't trading a ton of spice and the spices that they were trading, they were selling at even more outrageous prices. It's hard to find an analogy in the modern day of a commodity that was so critical to people's lives being cut off. And you know these commodities are coming from somewhere, but how do you find them? This time period between the 1450s and the 1490s is when Europeans, particularly the Portuguese and the Spanish, really start trying to figure out how can we get these spices directly from the source. Let me try and make an analogy with the oil and gas crisis of the 1970s. Oil and gas had always been very cheap to obtain, easy to obtain, plentiful. And then in the 1970s, there was a crisis where basically it was cut off and there was a stranglehold of the product itself. 
that began a whole new wave of research and exploration here on the continent in North America so that one day, decades later, North America basically has become energy independent. So you can make that analogy with Constantinople that fell in 1453. And now European countries have to slowly look for alternative ways of reaching Asia. And one of them was exploring down the coast of Africa, as we've mentioned, and finally reaching the tip of Africa. I think it was in 1488. Yeah. Uh, and this was a legacy of Prince John the Navigator and his whole system of encouraging Portuguese sailors and technology in order to do so. Explorers round the tip of Africa in 1488 and Columbus only four years later sails west. Yeah. And so that conquest of Constantinople, that did a few things. It really did three things that impacted directly the need for these voyages of discovery. It cut off the spice trade. It put a bunch of really great Italian cartographers, navigators, and sailors out of jobs. These people knew how to manage ships. They knew everything about sailing and how to navigate. They're out of work. They're ready to go work for Portugal and Spain. And the last thing that happened was it pushed out a lot of the Greek scholars of Constantinople who knew a lot about ancient cartography and ancient theories on things such as the size of the earth. It's now the eve of 1494. Spain has entered the discovery game. Portugal has been there for a while, and now both countries who are competing want to sort things out. What is a papal bull? A papal bull is a really important document in the Middle Ages. A papal bull is an official declaration by the Pope. Bull comes from a Latin word, bulla, which refers to the official leaden seal placed on the document. Bulls were issued for all sorts of things and were really quite common up until the last hundred years or so. But when the Pope issued a bull, that was serious. A bull was serious business. Was Could you compare it to an executive order by the President of the United States? That plus, so that temporal action, but there's also usually a spiritual action involved with that as well. So if you don't follow a papal bull, you could get excommunicated for it. So it's like a presidential executive order plus. So your soul was also at risk. Yes, absolutely. And so whenever we're talking about the Middle Ages, that is a key consideration when people act. So leading up to the treaty, there are some papal bulls that are signed. Yes, those papal bulls are in a way more important than the treaty themselves. Who was Pope Alexander VI? He is one of the most fascinating characters in the entire history of the popes of Rome and Christian church. And I could go on about him for hours. He's the greatest Renaissance pope, in my opinion, but you could put him in a top list of almost any category you want in popes. But more importantly for us today is that Alexander VI, that was his name he took upon becoming Pope. What he went by in Italy was Rodriga Borgia. He was born in the kingdom of Aragon, and his real name was Rodrigo de Borja. He was an Aragonese nobleman from around the area of Valencia, or Valencia, as they would say it now. 
And then as the name was italicized as Borgia because he had lived in Italy for so long and was so intricately involved in Italian politics. What's interesting is Borgia at that time, he was really close personally to Isabella and Ferdinand. He knew them since they were teenagers, and he's in large part what allowed to get them married. He was the one who pushed that through politically and made that happen, even though the king of Castile, Enrique, wasn't super happy about it, and they really shouldn't have gotten married. He was the one who smoothed over a lot of things and actually got permission from the Pope hope at that time for that to happen. So that connection to Isabella and Ferdinand plays a critical role in our story today about the various treaties and papal bulls that happen. It just so happens that Ferdinand and Isabella are so faithful to Alexander VI. The fun fact is Alexander VI, Rodrigo Borges, his uncle was a pope, and then a later descendant through his son, who was the Duke of Gandia, would become a Jesuit saint of the church. So Pope Alexander is responsible for signing a papal bull or several leading up to the actual treaty of 1494? The papal bulls and the documents that come out in 1494, there's a bit of context before that. There's a papal bull that was signed in 1455 called Romanus Pontifex. A lot of these names of the papal bulls have, the title has really nothing directly to the content. So if you know Latin or you know something about bulls and later papal encyclicals, the title won't give you any clue to what the content of the document is. But anyways, this bull from 1455 gave the Portuguese Monopoly rights of first discovery to everything up to the Cape of Bahador on the African coast. That's just south of the modern nation of Morocco and the Canary Islands. So it's not terribly far down the African coast. And that shows you how small their discoveries were at this point or how limited. Now, 1456, another pope, Pope Calixtus, reaffirmed those rights and extended it to all along the African coast. So he's kind of giving them the Portuguese full range, whatever you find along this African coast is yours to exploit. One thing I should note is in 1494, nobody who was anybody who knew anything about navigation or the sciences thought that the earth was flat. Nobody thought this, and nobody had really thought this for centuries and even millennia. Philosophers, scientists, theologians, they knew the earth was round since Greek times. It's really a modern myth that the medievals, quote unquote, thought that the earth was flat. It was really a piece of anti-Catholic mythology that was created in the 1800s. Um, one of the key people was the guy who wrote The Headless Horseman and Rip Van Winkle. Washington Irving, he wrote a book that he sold as a nonfiction book about the history of medieval Europe. I think he may have written it originally as a fiction book, but people took it as nonfiction. So he put, oh, the medieval Spanish thought that Columbus, they thought he was going to sail over the edge of the world. And all this stuff that he put in this book, it was all not true. Nobody thought that in the medieval times, like medieval times, like hardcore, like dark ages, you go back, the Romans, the Greeks, nobody thought that. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Join us next time for part two of this special conversation.